I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Introducing Father Vincent Lampert a Catholic priest of 32 years, an exorcist of 19 years. And if you feel like you're the doomed and the damned, he will bring you back to the path of the light of God. Father Vincent, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. So today is a very interesting day. And sometimes I believe that things are coupled together spiritually. (laughs) Have you ever experienced that? Every day, every day, never a dull moment. So I don't know if you heard, but Jerry Springer died today. I just just saw that, yes. And that is where my career began. Wow. It's really crazy. So I was in a meeting with one of my kids' teachers when the story broke And then I didn't even take my phone with me because I was focused on defending Mm -hmm. my kid and having a serious conversation in the school. And then I got home and, you know, got a barrage of hundreds of messages, which you get too. (laughs) Every day. So where did you begin with Jerry Springer? Where was that? In Chicago. I interned there. It was my first job out of college. Ah. So I went from intern to producer in one season and... It really was just, I feel like a training ground for a lot of what I did in my career. And I feel like hindsight, looking back, just a, a, a very lucky break. Mm-hmm. And the I former was, mayor of Cincinnati. Yes. Hey, <laughs> and that's not far from where you live, Indiana. So I know a lot of people watch Jerry Springer in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, I'm only 35 minutes from downtown Cincinnati. Wow. So I live on the Ohio state line. I know where that is. I grew up in Louisville and I went to school in Indiana. I went to Purdue. Okay. I have a talk at Purdue on this next Tuesday. Really? Yeah. What are you talking about? Three guesses and the first two don't count. (laughs) The Theology on Tap evening, sponsored by St. Thomas Aquinas, the uh, Catholic parish on campus at Purdue. So I'll be there on Tuesday evening. Yep. What a small world. See, lots of coincidences. Wow. You know what's funny? I reached out to Purdue to see if they would be interested since I I'm a graduate of Purdue in featuring me. And they said that they couldn't because I used the word controversy in the title, the safe space for controversy. I was like, hmm. Uh So I'm actually surprised that they're willing to talk about exorcism. 
Well, this is being sponsored by the Catholic Campus Ministry. So I thought colleges were the place for all kinds of debates. I thought so, too. As a child, were you a questioner? Did you debate at all? Oh, yeah. I, I like to question. I read all kinds of books, so I like to be uh, well-informed. Did you ever read about the occult? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yes. Okay, I'm glad because my husband was very into the occult as a child, and he has a couple questions. So I'm going to oh, okay. start with that. <laughs> Because <laughs> these are unique to my family. And where, where do you live now? You are located where? We're in Houston. In Houston. Okay. Very good. So have you heard of Leo Zagami? I'm sure you have. Leo Zagami. I'm not sure. Okay. So he mentioned that exorcism, the exorcism ritual was modified in 1999 to make it less effective. Have you heard about that? I know all about it, yeah, because the, the revision came out in 1999. There's all kinds of different interpretations on that. But What's your interpretation? I, I think the new right came out in, uh, it was put promulgated in 1998. It was released in 1999 by then Pope John Paul II. It was the very last liturgical right to be updated after the Second Vatican Council. So between 1962 and 1965, the church wanted to kind of look in the mirror, if you will, and say, how is she relevant in the modern world? So a lot of the rites were being updated. The rite of exorcism was the very last one, and it replaced the former rite that dated back to the year 1614. So from 1614 to 1998, the rite remained unchanged. The new rite then was tweaked until 2004, 2005. There were some criticisms that maybe it wasn't as powerful in its wording, if you will. And then the English translation came out in 2016. But ultimately, it's the prayer of the church. And if it's the prayer of the church, that's all that really matters. So people can have debates on which is better, Latin or English, the old rite or the new rite. I always tell people, I think the devil likes that because it shows division. But we should just accept that it's the prayer of the church and move forward. Interesting. He did also ask, like, if you study the cult, does that invite evil? No, I think because people that are trying to educate themselves will read all kinds of things and maybe even watch movies just as a way to better understand the occult, maybe what people are watching. So there's two new movies coming out now. The Pope's Exorcist has just been released. The movie Nefarious is, I think, coming out soon. And both of them have very strong focus on the demonic. But just watching these things or reading about them doesn't mean one is opening an entry point. Again, as long as one is kind of well-rooted in their faith, then that would protect and safeguard them. So it's one thing just to read it, to learn about it. It's another thing that if somebody starts practicing it, then that could be an entry point for the demonic. But just trying to educate yourself, I would say, no, that's not going to put anybody in danger. So I actually, I don't know if you can see this, but I picked up a copy of your book and I felt like as a Jewish person, a little guilty for <laughs> just educating myself. That book is now out of print, by the way. Ooh, I got lucky to get a copy then. I, I contacted the publisher yesterday. And they said that they only had 20 copies left, so it was going to reprint. But again, I think that book is an easy read. It's yes. really just trying to educate people about what the Catholic Church believes, and what people do with that is up to them. But at least it's clear to say, this is what the Church believes and teaches about the reality of evil. You know, the Church can propose, the Church doesn't impose. The Church just says, this is what we believe, and, you know, we don't force anybody to accept it. But again, it just makes it clear where we stand. Yeah, I do think that, that it was an easy read and interesting, because I haven't heard all of these terminologies and uh -huh. the explanation behind them. I'm, I'm actually curious 
to learn more about vexations. Uh Can you talk a little bit about that? So the church says there are four extraordinary types of demonic activity. Number one would be infestation, the presence of evil in a location associated with an object and even animals. And then demonic vexation or physical attacks. Demonic obsession is mental attacks and then demonic possession, which is where the devil or some evil spirit would take control of a person's body, treating that body as if it were its own, using the person's eyes to see, their mouth to speak, their ears to hear and so on. But demonic vexation would be physical attacks. These include things like bites and marks and bruises that appear on a person's skin, maybe scratches, even incisions of letters that might pop up out of the skin, maybe forming words, and then they kind of subside after a while. But again, demonic vexation would be somebody is being attacked physically by a a demonic entity. And then demonic obsession would be mental attacks. Literally, the devil's trying to get inside of a person's head. So they hear things all the time or like footsteps in the middle of the night, ringing of bells and things. And they might see the number 666 everywhere. They might feel like they're being followed. So again, it's really trying to cause the person to feel as if they're losing their mind. And demonic obsession is actually the most difficult of the four types of extraordinary demonic activity to deal with. It's even more difficult than demonic possession because you're trying to deal with a person's spiritual state and their mental state at the same time. Because a lot of times when people are suffering from demonic obsession, a lot of the symptoms may be very similar to those who may be having some type of a mental health crisis in their life. What are you most frequently contacted about? Well, ironically, you know, I currently get 3,500 requests a year for help, and they come from all over the world, all the United States. I got emails this week from people in Zambia, Oman in the Mideast, United Arab Emirates, the Central African Republic. So they come from all over, and they come from people of all different faith traditions. So either they may be Catholic, they may be Christians of other faith traditions, members of other world religions, they may be Jewish, they may be Muslim, but they just feel like they're dealing with the demonic in their life, and they're looking for an answer on how to address that. And the Catholic Church views exorcism as a ministry of charity, so the Church would help anyone who would reach out to her. And it's not trying to proselytize, it's not trying to convert somebody, but we just accept people where they are, and then try to provide them with the help that they need. And obviously, of the 3,500 people that contact me, A lot of the people believe they're possessed already. They self-diagnose. Some people aren't sure what's going on. Probably the other second most common is infestation. People believe there's a presence of evil in their home, or they feel as if they did something, and now evil has followed them back to their house. So just working with all these people and giving them some good guidance and direction on what they can do to address that. I hear you even have an assistant that's able to field some of the questions. You mentioned that in your book, that you have somebody who has been trained to work with an exorcist, and and she is able to take some of those 3,500, I think at the time in your book, even it was only 1,800, but she's able to help handle some of that. Since COVID-19, the number has gone up dramatically. In fact, I've now recruited some more people to help me because it's just a very, uh, quite a uh, request coming in. And I'm pretty good about responding to people. You know, I usually respond within maybe 24 to 48 hours when I get an email from somebody. And then either I provide them with guidance and direction maybe prayers that they can pray on their behalf, maybe encourage them, have they talked to kind of the leader of their faith tradition, just to get some guidance and direction from them. And then also the fact is that, you know, somebody could be dealing with a very clear mental health issue. So I'd I'd tell people, have you talked to your family doctor? Have you maybe considered seeing the counselor, that type of thing? Because, you know, as an exorcist, I'm trained to be a skeptic. I should be the last person to believe that somebody is possessed. In fact, I say that the church 
would cause greater harm if she labels someone as dealing with extraordinary demonic activity. And that label convinces the person of something that isn't true and maybe even prevents them from going to see a mental health professional or their family doctor. So there's a protocol that's used in the United States. person is required to have a mental health evaluation, and it isn't necessarily that the church doesn't believe them. But if somebody is dealing with the demonic, they need to come out of that crisis mode, if you will. So they need to be at a good level mentally in their life, a good place before an exorcism would be done. They need to see their family doctor to have a physical examination to rule out any physical cause. I have an intake questionnaire that I would use. I meet with the person and it asks a series of questions. It comes out of the Vatican course on exorcism. So every year, the Vatican sponsors the course in Rome to help train exorcists. And they bring in people from the medical field, psychological. Exorcism is looked at from every possible angle that there is. Step four of the protocol, the church says that there are four signs of extraordinary demonic activity that could be present in somebody who's possessed. The ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual. So I've gotten to know the person. I know they don't speak Greek or Latin. And all of a sudden, their voice changes and I'm hearing an entity speak Latin or Greek. That would be an indication that just not that person as an individual, but now the demon speaking through that person's body. Number three is elevated perception, knowledge about things that that person shouldn't otherwise know. And then four, a negative reaction to anything of a sacred nature, such as being in a sacred space, being blessed with holy water, being shown a crucifix, having Bible stories read out loud in front of them. So it's very, very methodical process. There is no such thing as an emergency exorcism. When that's done is usually when problems arise. You know, step five of the protocol is the most important one. It's to normalize the spiritual life of the person. Because I would suggest casting the demon out is the easy part. It's convincing the person to reconnect with God in their life, or maybe to consider having a relationship with God for the very first time. I would love to know more about your relationship with God. You know, I've been, I was ordained a priest on June the 1st of 1991, so my 32nd anniversary is coming up. I grew up in a very uh, strong Catholic family in the city of Indianapolis. My mother was a convert. Really? Yes, she was not raised Catholic. She belonged to kind of an independent Christian church. And then when she married my dad, she decided to become Catholic. I have eight brothers and sisters. We all attended Catholic grade school and high school. And so the church was always a very important part of our family. We spent a lot of time at the church volunteering or doing whatnot. So faith has always been important. So after I graduated from high school, I went off to uh, study at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And after two years, I decided to go to the seminary, study to become a priest. So I jokingly tell people that conversion is possible even in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, uh, I went to school in southern Indiana, a little town called St. Meinrad. It's near Santa Claus, Indiana. Been there? Yes. So uh, St. Meinrad's only about 10 miles away. It's an arch abbey run by Benedictine monks, and they train men on how to be priests. So it's a seminary. I finished my college there, and then I did graduate studies at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in uh, Mundelein, Illinois, just north of Chicago. So then I graduated in 91. I was ordained a priest. And then after being a priest for uh, about 14 years, my bishop uh, told me I was becoming the exorcist. So it wasn't a job that I was looking for. It was a job that found me. My bishop then sent me to Rome for training. The church says the best way to learn how to be an exorcist is through the apprenticeship model. So when I was appointed in 2005, I became only one of 12 Catholic exorcists in the United States. So there really wasn't anyone to train under. 
So I went to Rome and there was a priest there who allowed me to sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during the three months that I lived there. And then that allowed me to learn firsthand the church's ministry to those who were being afflicted by the demonic and the best way to help them. So I'm now in my 18th year of doing this ministry. Remarkable. I'm curious how dignity comes into your work. Dignity? Tell me a little bit more about that, what you're asking. So people are getting pretty vulnerable in what they're sharing. And I would imagine that it takes a lot of compassion to do the work that you do. Absolutely. And in addition, I'm also the pastor of two churches in southeastern Indiana. So I take care of two parishes in Brookville, Indiana. And then I also do this ministry. I keep very busy. But again, exorcism is a ministry of compassion. It's a ministry of charity. So it's about helping people. And helping people also means telling them not necessarily what they want to hear, but Mm. what I think they need to hear. That maybe they think it's the demonic, but that may not truly be the case. It may be the fact that somebody needs to have some good mental health counseling. And unfortunately, sometimes when I tell people that, they'll look elsewhere. And you can always find somebody out there who will tell you what you want to hear. I had a gentleman from Virginia one time who told me that he believed he was possessed. I was able to connect him with a uh, psychologist in his area. He only went once. And then he told me, he goes, I know it's not mental health. It's just really a demon. So he refused to go back. And then he called me about a month later and said he found a professional exorcist who said that he could help him. So this is somebody that's not connected with any faith. They kind of do this as their professional job. And this man, uh, so this professional exorcist told this man who he was possessed by five demons. And he would charge him $1,500 each to get rid of them. So there are people that take advantage. So the church doesn't charge for this. There is no cost involved. It's because, again, it's prayer. It's praying with people. And unfortunately, in this case, somebody took advantage of this man's brokenness to take him for $7,500. Because he said he did it. He, he paid the person because he felt so desperate. That's awful. Whoa. Yeah. How many exorcists that don't announce that's what they are or aren't connected to faith do you think there are? I think it's growing. It's a growing trend because the Catholic Church didn't have a lot of exorcists. Now that's changed. There's now a training school in the United States for Catholic priests to become exorcists. And it opened about six or seven years ago. And they now have 300 graduates. So there are more than 300 Catholic priests in the United States who are trained on how to do exorcisms. But I think during that time when maybe priests weren't readily available, some people saw that as an opportunity, as a possible career. So there are a lot of people out there, I believe. I don't know any particular numbers. I think it's uh, quite substantial of people who claim to be a professional exorcist to help people. But from a faith perspective, the church would say, it's not me. I tell people, you're relying on me. We're all in trouble. But we have to be relying on the power of God. That is at work in the different faith ministers. So, but if somebody is doing it as a career and charging money, the question is, are they connected with God? And, you know, if you're not connected with God and you're trying to fight the devil, that's probably not a good place to be. Have you ever questioned your faith? Not really. I think we all go through a transition in our lives. You know, if we grow up in a traditional faith-filled home, you know, usually in your teens or you go off to college, you know, it's easy to say as a child, well, I go to church or I go to the synagogue because my parents take me. But when you become an adult, you really have to say, I go because it's what I think is the right thing to do for me. I think that's normal. So I I did that when I was 19, you know. You kind of step back and say, okay, what do I really believe? And for me, it was the death of a friend of mine that we had grown up together And he died at the age of 19 of a brain tumor. So that, you know, you're young, you think you're going to live forever, you're invincible. But then when something happens, I think you step back and say, wow, 
this life isn't going to last forever. What do I want to do or how do I want to live my life? And if you're a faithful person, you'll ask the question, what does God want me to do? So for me, it was, I believe that God was calling me to be a priest. So then that's the vocation that I chose. Can you talk to me about God moments that you feel like you've had that really you knew you were on the right path? You know, I have so many different God moments, even before I became an exorcist. You know, being with people, you visit them in hospitals, people that are dying. There's a lot of spiritual things that happen. I remember when I was in the seminary in southern Indiana at St. Meinrad, on the weekends, I used to go to the hospital in Jasper, Indiana, to visit the, uh, the patients. And there was a lady that had been in there for a couple of weeks, and I had been visiting her on a regular basis. And one day when I went in, I still remember her name was Bertha. And the nurse said, Bertha is kind of out of it today, so you may not want to visit her. But I went into her room, and Bertha looked at me and goes, they all think I'm crazy. But she goes, I know I'm dying. And she goes, my family has come for me, and I want to introduce them to you. And she pointed around her bed, all of her family members who had died. She mentioned her parents. She goes, my mom is standing there. My dad is standing there. And she went all around the, the room, and she goes, they've come for me because I know I'm going to die today. And she died later that afternoon. Oh, my God. But those types of things, they happen all the time when you're with people at different moments of their life. So a lot of times people think, well, if I tell people this, they're going to think I'm crazy. But I think a lot of people have these types of experiences, these God moments in their lives that maybe they don't readily share with others. But as I think as a priest, people feel comfortable in talking about these types of situations that they experience in their life. So I think as a priest, people invite people and in, in, they invite the priest into kind of some very personal and sacred moments in their life. So what keeps you going <laughs> in this line of work? Besides taking a nap every day? No. I find joy in being a priest and being with other people. To me, that's the most rewarding thing there is. So I just celebrated a funeral today. I have two tomorrow. I have another one on Saturday. I have another one next Tuesday. So as a priest, you know, there are certain things I know I need to do every day, but really it's how the day unfolds. You never know who's going to call or who's going to stop by and what situations are going to come up. But again, to me, the most important thing about being a, a priest, I call it the ministry of presence, to truly be present to people. doesn't mean I necessarily have all the answers, but I think people are looking for someone just to listen to them. Even a lot of these calls that I get in the ministry of exorcism, it may be that I'm the first person that ever listened to this person about what they think is happening in their life. Oftentimes people tell me that, you know, they leave a message and maybe at the church or wherever they attend and uh, it's ignored. No one calls them back or told they're crazy and that type of thing. So I simply like to listen to people where they believe they are. And then I give them some input based on my own training and experience in the ministry of exorcism. I love that. That's really beautiful. I don't know how you find the words. Do you feel like they're from God? when you speak at funerals? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can walk in and do a funeral without planning or preparing anything. I could just walk in. And, and when I, you know, as a priest, whenever I preach, I don't stay behind a podium. I, I like to walk out in the midst of the people. And even at a funeral, I will uh, speak in front of the casket. So, and then at the end of a funeral service, I invite the family to all come forward and to lay a hand on the casket to join me in the closing prayer. Again, recognizing our connection with this person, whether they're a family member or a friend, but also the fact that we're all connected in faith. So it's really about engaging other people. I remember when I was in the seminary in Chicago, the priest that was teaching on how to preach, he said, the people are bored already. Don't bore them more by what you have to say. He would say, give them razzmatazz. Give them razzmatazz? <laughs> oh my God, that's hysterical. 
Oh my God. Oh, I, I cannot imagine doing that many funerals. That That is really hard. Yeah. And I, I do five services on the weekend. I do two on Saturday evening and three every Sunday morning. And yes. and it's, you feel guided? Like you feel like the words are, are from above? I'm also curious too on your thoughts on spirits. And do you feel like the spirit lives on? Absolutely. Yes. You know, sometimes when people think they're dealing with the demonic, you know, the question is, is it always the demonic or could it be the spirit of one who's died? And so the Catholic Church does believe that it is possible that somebody is encountering the spirit of one who has died, maybe in their home. So it's not a demonic infestation, but maybe God has permitted the spirit of one who has died to come back, maybe to give a uh, some consolation to someone who has died. You know, this friend of mine who died at the age of 19, his grandmother told me that for five nights straight, that he used to come and visit her at night and sit on the end of her bed and talk to her. And then she said that on the fifth night, he said to her, Grandma, he goes, I can't come anymore. I need to go where God wants me to be. But God has allowed me to come back to visit you, to give you comfort due to my death. But now I need to move on where I need to be. So it's always a question of what, what God is doing. I've heard other people say that, mm-hmm. that they've, they've had moments like this. How did you start being able to differentiate when someone was telling you the truth or versus mental health problems? Yeah, I think that's why, you know, I, I educate myself. I read an extremely... A large quantity of material. I rely on counselors that I know or psychologists that I know, and I'll say, hey, what's your take on this person? And I get permission from the person to consult. Because again, if somebody is struggling, their situation should be looked at from many different angles, spiritual angle, physical angle, and even a mental angle. And the goal should be to get the person, the help they need, whether it's spiritual, mental, or physical. Because I think people that are, you know, contacting me are broken on some level. And to me, the doctor, the priest, and the psychiatrist should be working together to help bring some sense of wholeness and completeness into the life of the person who has contacted me. I love that. In all of your years, have you thought about what you want your legacy to be? There's a line in the scriptures that I always remember. So it's in the in the New Testament where the disciples come back and the reference is that he must increase and I must decrease. So the focus is always on God and not on myself. So that's kind of the, uh, the mindset that I have. Do you feel like you are a light in the dark? I think so. That's my, my favorite line probably in the Bible. One of them is from the book of Genesis when God says, let there be light. Because a lot of people that reach out to me are in darkness, and I want to bring them into the light. And that light, of course, is uh, God himself. The light of God is being cast upon somebody who's trapped in darkness. And there's a line in the New Testament that says in Matthew's gospel, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your heavenly Father. So anything that we do to God should be the glory. It doesn't go to us. We always reflect it back to God, who is the giver of light. Do you feel like that's our purpose here? Absolutely. You know, there's a great image. Many people might have seen the painting on the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel with the Vatican in Rome. It's a story of creation, you know, where the finger, the finger of God and the finger of, of Adam are touching. I wonder how many people have actually looked closely at that painting because it shows God floating on a cloud, but the cloud is in the shape of the human brain. And I don't think most people realize that. So when God touches Adam, he's giving him intellect, reason. Think of light. You know, if you have a great idea, someone says a light bulb has come on or 
in a cartoon, there's a light bulb above your head. And I think that's really the purpose of faith. It's about light, understanding how God truly wants us to live and not live in darkness. Why do you think there are so many atheists and especially in this younger generation, why is there such an absence of God? I think a lot of people, the reason I think that is that a lot of people have not had a genuine encounter with God. God has just been something that's been taught to them kind of like on paper, but not a lived experience. Even Mm -hmm. when somebody tells me they're an atheist, I like to say to them, well, what's the rest of the story? Years ago, there was a reporter called Paul Harvey who would read the news. And then at the end, he would say, now the rest of the story. So what's behind the scenes? So when somebody tells me they're an atheist, I want to ask, what's behind the scenes? Does something traumatic happen? You know, their parents divorced when they were young and they didn't know how to deal with that. Did they blame God for allowing that to happen? You know, everybody has a story to share. So for me, when somebody says they're an atheist, if they're willing to do so, I'm happy to to listen and unpack what that means. But I think probably the biggest challenge for faith here in the 21st century is that many people have a misguided notion of God. You know, every once in a while, I like to ask one of my parishes, there's a great school. So I like to ask the kindergartners to draw me a picture of God. And it's always an image that's loving and kind and compassionate. But there's a lot of people that have an image of God as, you know, God's going to get you if you step out of line. There's a, you know, hellfire and brimstone, that type of thing. So I think a lot of people today just don't have a good image of God. And because of that, it's just easy to say, well, I'm an atheist and completely reject God rather than maybe looking into what God truly is. Mm. You know, in the Bible, it tells us the name of God. It's mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Moses says to God, when I go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. And then in the New Testament, Jesus references those same words, I am. So if you think about it, I am means to be, to exist. If you think of the devil, it's about non-existence not to be. So I think there's a lot of people that live in darkness. So to me, the most powerful image of God is that of light. You know, how do we experience joy and happiness in life? I think a lot of people look at the Catholic Church today and perhaps see it as a bunch of rules and regulations, when in reality, the church is both a teacher and a mother. As a teacher, the church is always going to say, this is how we're called to live our lives. But as a mother, the church will love us no matter what. And I like to ask parents, could your child ever do anything to make you stop loving them? No. Now, you may be disappointed in a choice they make, but you can never be disappointed in who they are, namely your child. And I think that's the image of God that I have. There's nothing that we can do to, to disappoint God because we are all God's children. The human person is created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, the human person has great value and great dignity. And maybe there are people that have failed to experience that in their life. And because of that, it's just, again, easier to say, I don't believe in God. In the ministry of exorcism, to me, it's all about helping to evangelize people, to get them to think and to say, well, have you ever considered this? And again, it's about proposing giving people something to think about, which may lead them to seek to have a relationship with God themselves. I would love to hear some people that have changed their mind about God. I think there's a lot of people like that that are out there. You know, when I do a funeral, for example, there are many people there that uh, maybe are fallen away Catholics, haven't been to church in a long time. There may be people who are not, but that's an opportunity to try to help evangelize these people and maybe give them a different experience at church than maybe they grew up with. There's always somebody that says, you know, the priest made me mad or I left or I did, you know, somebody did something. 
So again, it's just a way of giving people perhaps a more positive experience of what the church is really all about. So again, the church is a mother and a teacher. When I look at Pope Francis today, for example, I think he focuses on the church as a mother. So maybe there's a lot of people that know the church as a teacher, but maybe the church hasn't done a good job in recent years in really articulating that church is a mother who loves us unconditionally. So I think that's why we see Pope Francis in his ministry just reaching out to people all over the place. Again, as a mother would do, you just accept people for who they are and where they are. Did your parents accept you for who you were and where you were? Uh, absolutely. All of us, because I have six brothers and two sisters. I'm number seven in the lineup. We're all in the same family. We're all different, unique, and but somehow we all form one same, the same family. Did anybody question the church? Oh, yeah. I, I have brothers and sisters that don't go to church anymore. The family of a priest is much like society. And I mean, do, do they make any jokes about? No, no. I mean, they're all respect. They're all respectful and things like that. You know, we have good fun. My younger brother gave me a T-shirt one time and it had the Ghostbuster image on it and said, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's probably so many of those. Oh, my. OK, so I did ask my audience if they had any questions. So I want to do a couple fun ones really quick. All right. Oh, man, I'm sure you get some good fun questions. I told them I was interviewing an exorcist. So I'm sure some of these you've heard before even, but maybe uh -huh. we'll get something new and exciting. Yeah. When did you know that this is what you were called to do? When I was in the fifth grade, there's a study that's been done that says that fifth graders actually give serious consideration on what they want to do with their life. And when I was in the fifth grade, I, of course, I went to a Catholic school and I had a religion test and I got a hundred on it. And the nun told me, you should become a priest. And it always stuck with me. And ironically, that, that sister, she's passed away now, but she grew up in one of the parishes where I'm now pastor. So members of her family belong to one of the parishes where I'm the parish priest. That's almost so, like a, a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I have a fifth grader now. I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Have you ever been tempted by a demon? I wouldn't say that I've been tempted by a demon, but I've been attacked. So I, anybody that fights the devil can experience some type of retaliation because the devil knows who's trying to work in, against him and defeat him. So I've experienced demonic attacks. There is something called demonic oppression where God permits the devil to attack somebody, not that they did anything wrong, but it's considered to be a gift from God. God will let, that sounds strange, I know that demonic affliction is a gift. But in the Old Testament, think of Job. If people know the story of the book of Job, where God permits Satan to afflict Job, even though he's done nothing. And in the Bible account of Job, he's lost everything. His body is covered in sores. He's sitting in uh, ashes. He puts on sackcloth. His wife says to him, curse God and die. And Job beats his breast and says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if things be good, I glorify God. If things be bad, I glorify God. But I think anytime the devil is afflicting us through oppression, we can use that to our advantage. The devil will only attack in, in an area that he considers to be a weakness. So if the devil allows us to see a weakness in our lives, then we can use that because then we know how we need to put in more effort to grow in holiness and virtue by shoring up that weakness in our life. So it's important to note that you know, the devil was cast out of heaven, but he wasn't cast out of creation. God can still use him for his greater purposes. So even if I experience demonic attacks, then I, I see that as an opportunity for me to continue to grow in holiness and virtue. Do you believe that everything that happens here on the physical plane has a spiritual significance? I think it does. You no, know, everything that happens isn't necessarily what God desires. There's a difference between what God permits and what God desires. 
you know, because sometimes people will say, you know, where was God? I think people ask that whether they're shooting in the United States somewhere or COVID-19 or a child dying in the hospital, where was God? You know, we live in a fallen, sinful world. And, you know, God created, you know, the human person originally in paradise. Think of Adam and Eve. There's a difference between what God permits and what God desires. It's like that. God doesn't desire that anyone would die, but God permits it. And then God can make something great come out of that. You know, the belief in eternal life and being united with God in heaven. But I think for me, the most important thing for people to make the distinction of is what God permits and what God desires. Just because something happens doesn't mean it's, that's what God wants. But God is going to respect whatever laws or nature that are out there in place. Sometimes people will say, you know, I got a miracle. God did this. You know, my child was in the hospital and, and got better. And for me, I sometimes wonder, you know, what about the family who didn't get a miracle? Mm. You know, why does somebody get one and somebody doesn't get a miracle? So then you can really get into some, you know, very deep questions about why do they get it and I don't? Are they better than me? Am I worse than them? And that type of thing. But to me, it's always better to stay on the perspective that God is with us no matter what. Kind of that sentiment of Job again. If things be good, I glorify God. If things be bad. Because ultimately, the life that we now know is just a blip. You know, if you're a person of faith and you believe in, you know, that there's something more to human existence than the life that we now know, yeah, it's painful when people suffer or experience death, but then we entrust them to God. It's even Psalm 23, many people are familiar with. You know, even though I walk through the dark valley, so God never promised we wouldn't experience darkness, but he did promise that he would be with us at our side and that it's something that we're passing through. It's not something permanent, you know, because if the darkness we experience is permanent, I think we would all go mad. But God is the one who brings us out of that darkness. And then we're back to that image of light, again, which should give us that sense of comfort. Now, if you're scared, for example, what do you do? You have a nightlight, you have a flashlight. Again, it gives some sense of consolation. And to me, that's the relationship with God. You know, many times when I've celebrated funerals, somebody will say to me, Father, as difficult as this time is, I don't know how, how I would deal with the death of my loved one if I didn't have faith. Yeah. So I think faith that gets us through the darkness. Do you believe in generational curses? A lot of times people will base that on um, the book of Genesis. It also says the blessings pass down to these thousands. So the blessings are even greater. To me, the sins of those who went before us don't become our sins. But I think the sins of those who came before us can impact us. And I think there's a big difference between saying their sins are my sins and saying their sins impacted me. You know, if you grow up in an abusive home, you're going to be impacted by that. That's going to shape your outlook on the world. That might even cause somebody to reject God and say they're an atheist if they grew up in a home where maybe their father said he was a Christian, yet he beat them all the time. And maybe he drank all the time and gambled away the money, that type of thing. So I think there are generational effects of sin. But again, just to say that the sins of my grandfather are now my sins, I don't know that I would go there. I feel like a lot of people stay that line. Yeah, well, to me, that's also then blaming somebody else, maybe for all your problems, rather than saying, yeah, the, the, how I grew up, it stunk. I'm going to look at that, and I'm, that's going to motivate me to do better. I mean, what parent doesn't want their child to have a better life than they've had? You mentioned having a fifth grader. I would, I would presume that you want your child to live a better life than you have. And so you want to equip your children the best possible way that you can. How did your parents do that? A lot of hard work and effort, you know, growing up with nine children, you know, there, there's a struggle. I, I shared a bedroom with three other brothers. It was a 12 by 12 room. We had two sets of bunk beds, one chest of drawers that had four drawers in it. I was the youngest of the four in the room. So the clothes in the drawer, when they no longer fit the oldest one, they went to the next drawer and the next drawer until 
got to my drawer and then you, you hope there were some threads. But then you realize it's not all the material things that matter. It's the sense of family and being connected. You know, we used to uh, do activities together as a family all the time. Every Sunday morning, we would go to church. We would come home and eat breakfast. We'd all pile in the station wagon. And we would go visit a state park in Indiana. We would run the trails. We'd go fishing in the lake, swimming in the pool, catch frogs and turtles and snakes and all that stuff. And then we'd come back home that evening and, you know, everybody take a bath and then eat dinner and watch Walt Disney and go to bed. So it's kind of that sense of just being together. And I witnessed that, you know, in 2017, exorcism has taken me to different parts of the world. I spent 14 days in South Africa. And one day I had the opportunity to uh, visit the slums in Pretoria. There are three main slums. Each one is 15 square miles and the degradation of poverty. So we were going to go visit a Catholic church at the very end of this one slum. And out there, people were living in pieces of cardboard and metal that they got from the dump. And yet, you know, these people, when they saw us, because we're, we're driving in, the people that lived out there, they're smiling and waving at us. And they have nothing, but they seem to have something because they're radiating joy. You think in our country, we have so many material things, but we walk around with a long face most of the time. We don't have this joy or this light. And so I found the contrast between where do we seek happiness and joy in things or in our relationships with others and ultimately in our relationship with God? What truly gives human life ultimate meaning, purpose, and direction? And to me, it's being connected with one another. There's a sense of church or community and then being connected with God. It's not the things, but it's the people, relationships, I think, that truly matter. I love that. I also am curious about the differences in some of the places that you visited and like there are different beliefs towards exorcism. Yeah. You know, I think in the United States, a lot of parts of the Western world, maybe we're more skeptical because we think everything's in our power to control. So we might say, well, it's not demonic. This person just needs to take the right medication and they're going to be fine. It's a mental health issue. But other parts of the world, they may more readily accept the fact that there's a spiritual cause for the suffering that somebody is experiencing. So maybe in our culture, we might say, ah, we're more scientific and advanced than they are. So we know that it's, it's, it's medical or psychological. But in these other countries, they'll say, no, we believe that spiritual explanation is a possibility. That doesn't mean they're primitive or they're backwards. It's just how they live and what their belief systems are. And I, I don't think that we in the West should be so quick to criticize other people's beliefs and cultures about how they live their life and what they think about the spiritual realm. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really loving this conversation. It's so interesting. I've actually been to the Vatican and I've been to Italy once, but I huh? did not notice the painting in the way that you described it. <laughs> yeah, you can look it up online. And it's, it's so powerful to think, you know, there's you know, what separates humans from other creatures. We can reason, we can think. I would like to know too, what would you say to a non-believer? What would I say to a non-believer? I would just, I would tell them what I believe and share with them, you know, this is my experience. And then maybe just challenge them to think about their own experiences. Because I would, you know, I firmly believe that there's more to our existence than this life. You know, to me to say that this life is all there is. And when you die, it's lights out. I mean, that's kind of a glum perspective. But to realize that, you know, there has to be, why are we here? You know, is, is humanity just a fluke of nature? Some planet out here in the solar system that a very slim chance that life could come about. And, and here we are. And you know, to me, sometimes people may even use the term that there is a, uh, a grand design. You know, even if people say they may not believe in God, it may be because, again, they're rejecting 
some image of God that they grew up with. But can people say that there is an intelligent design behind human existence and what we experience? And then is there a possibility that we can call that God? Because again, God, I am to exist, to be. How often do you ask yourself these questions? I think about them all the time. To me, it's constantly learning and educating. You know, as closer as you get, you look at your life. I just turned 60 back on April the 7th. So you look at your life and you think, okay, where have I been? Where am I headed? I remember a, a bishop in the United States many years ago, he gave a talk. He goes, I just turned 60 and my brother called me and said, happy birthday. Do you realize for every four years you live, you only have one left? How are you going to live them? So it's a challenge to think about what really matters, what brings joy and happiness to life. And, and ironically, that bishop, he died a year later. I saw an article in the paper. He died at the age of 61 because he had a brain aneurysm and he passed away. So he didn't even get 15 more years. He only had one. But he said his brother, who told him that, really motivated him to rethink his life, his outlook on it. I think that's what faith tries to do is to get people to think about their life, to reevaluate. You know, I think there's a lot of people that feel like they're just trapped whether it's in certain relationships, there's no joy, they're just like a cog in the wheel. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with stepping back and saying, does God have something more in store for me? What does God want me to do? I also tell people that they should live a philosophy that I have is don't let anyone rob you of the joy that God wants you to have. Just because somebody has a sour disposition doesn't mean you have to have a sour disposition. You don't have to take that on. You can challenge them to maybe leave that behind, but ultimately that choice is theirs. But we don't have to allow somebody in our own outlook on life. Mm, my dad will love that. That's really good. Have you ever felt like you've reinvented yourself? I think so. You know, um, I think being an exorcist has challenged me to be a better priest and even a better person. You know, as a priest today, I mean, there's fewer priests in the, in the United States today, even throughout the world. And again, we can have multiple jobs and be pulled in many different directions. And the danger is to, is to view priesthood as a occupation rather than a vocation. And to me, the word vocation means a calling from God. I do what I do because God has called me to do it. I think you do what God, you know, you do because God has called you to do it. So if we look at it from that perspective. So to me, priesthood is not a job. It really is a vocation. And if God has called me to do it, then I firmly believe that God will give me the wherewithal and the strength. He will equip me to do the job that he's called me to do. Mm, that's so good. Would you want to live forever? Absolutely. In this life, no. In the life to come, yes. In this life, no. <laughs> what would you want your family to know about you? I think we're all pretty close. I don't know that there's any hidden secrets that are out there. And uh, we're all respectful of one another. You know, they know I'm a priest. Some of them may be non-believing anymore. They don't go to church, that type of thing. But there's a respect for where we all are. And that's probably a good something that society needs in general, you know, because we're all different and things like that. But I always say that we're not in competition with one another. You know, at the end of the day, no one gets to say, well, I have a bigger piece of God than you have. Or there's always people that are quickly to tell you, well, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And when people say that to me, I always say, well, I'm just happy to know that you don't get to make the decision because religion shouldn't be about bickering back and forth. To me, people of faith are like children of the same family. We all have the same parent. How we live out our relationship with our parents is different, not necessarily better, one better than the other. It just means that it's different. Yes, I have four different children and they are all very different. <laughs> that's interesting, but I love them all. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's how God views all of us. We're all different and that's I, how we should view God. I thought it was interesting too that you referred to God as a mother versus a father because I always think of God as a father. Why is that? I think God is, you know, 
kind of at both. And you think of the qualities of like a mother being nurturing, that type of thing. And then you think of, you know, God as father and provider and that type of thing. I think of God as a combination of all of that. And ultimately, is God male or female? And the answer would be, well, in the Bible, it says that the human person is created in the image and likeness of God, that he created them male and female and that type of thing. So, so we use terms like he maybe to describe God, but no matter what we say, always falls short. Because the human mind cannot wrap itself around the mystery of God. If we could completely understand God, then we would be on the same level with God. And ultimately, no creature can be on the same level as the creator. You know, some of the 10 most powerful words, I think, in the Bible are in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. The first 10 words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is outside of what? Time, because God created time. God is outside of space, he created the heavens, and God is outside of matter, he created the earth. So try to conceptualize an entity outside of time, space, and matter. Now that's our point of reference, so to conceptualize an entity outside of that, that's beyond my capability. But it's what we believe, and so I accept it. So that's even the thing about the thing about faith is we accept certain things that maybe we can't fully grasp or understand, but we accept them because we believe that this is revelation that has come to us through the Bible and, and things like that. I am in awe of your faith. So try to conceptualize timeless time, spaceless space, and no matter. And to me, that's getting to where heaven is. It's being connected with God. And ultimately, God is love. We hear that in John's gospel. God is love. And the persons of the Trinity, from a Christian perspective, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united by love. And the goal of the faith-filled life is to radiate something of the love of God so that when this life comes to an end, the love within us will be united with the love of God. So then the person will share in the indwelling of the persons of the Trinity with God for all eternity. We will be outside of time again. We will be outside of space. We will be outside of matter. Because, you know, is heaven above or below? Again, we use these terms. And the best way to understand it is that we dumb things down to our understanding. But no matter what we say, it always falls short of God. St. Augustine, who lived back during the, the late 5th century and early 6th centuries, used to say, when you're studying theology and trying to understand God, once you say, I finally got it, he says, what you have understood is not God. So just when we think we have our hands on God, it's like grabbing a fish out of the water and then slip is gone. So we can know something, but we cannot know everything. And being a person of faith means to be okay with that, to live with that level of lack of understanding, if you will, and just accept it. Do you think that <laughs> babies or people that are nearing death have a closer relationship with God? I think so. Absolutely. Yes. Because if you think of children, you know, the innocence of children, and even in the New Testament, Jesus says that their faces behold, their angels in heaven behold the face of God. And I think people that are children, that sense of innocence, people that are nearing death, they've come to realize that there's something bigger than maybe the little things that we argue about in this life. And that something bigger is God. And so it's just complete surrender to God and they let go. And a lot of the people that I encounter that are elderly, they're ready to die. There is no sense of fear. It's because of that deep level of faith. And, you know, they may not be the greatest theologians, but they it's what they believe and accept. And so like the lady today that I had the funeral for in the burial, her husband, I had his funeral a year and a half ago. She was ready to die a year and a half ago. So when she was passing, she's like, I'm ready. I am ready to leave this world and whatever God has next in store for me, I'm ready for it. But she goes, there's nothing here in this life for me anymore. But it takes great faith to be able to say that. Are you scared of being? No, absolutely not. 
I'm not scared of the demonic either. All these crazy things that I see and witness, it doesn't scare me or terrify me. None of that. No. Can you talk a little bit about the demonic that you've seen? Oh, yeah. I've witnessed, uh, you know, manifestations of the demonic are meant to instill fear because if somebody is afraid, you can control them. But when you let go of fear, then you learn to live in freedom. So I've seen everything from eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling and snarling. I've seen a body levitate during an exorcism. I've seen people possessed by demons where their body will drop on the floor and slither like a snake. I've seen demons speak in very deep and authoritative voices. It's like a child screaming to get attention so that the focus is on itself. Temperatures in the room can drop, becoming much colder. Horrible stenches. So there's all different kinds of ways. But in all of these things, it's, it's the demons saying, look at what I'm capable of doing. So look at me. Don't look at what God is trying to do in the exorcism, but look at me. And again, fear will allow people to be controlled. But when people let go of fear, then you let go of that power of the devil over you. How did you learn perfect, how to do that? Perfect faith will cast out fear. Now, there's a difference between fear and a normal reaction. If I'm walking down the street and somebody jumps out of the building, goes, boo, I'm going to jump. That's just a normal reaction. But the things that I witnessed, I, I participated in exorcism last Friday with another priest in, a, in another diocese. And the manifestations, they don't, they don't concern me. They don't cause me to be afraid. I don't lose sleep in the middle of the night or, or wake up and think, oh, what did I see? What did I hear? No, because I know the power of God is greater than the power of evil. Can you be cured 100%? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I had did an exorcism a few years ago where a, the lady told me that she became possessed because she grew up in a, uh, a home. It's a horrible story, but I hear a lot of horrible stories. Her father began to rape her at the age of seven. And then it continued over a five-year period. When she turned 12, her father turned his attention to her younger sister. She was shattered and broken. She blamed God for allowing it to happen. So she completely rejected God. No longer went to church or prayed or anything. And then she turned to the world of the occult, so-called faith healers and shamans and that type of thing, who said they could help her put the pieces of her life back together. But she was only broken even more and more. So she had been away from the church for 38 years. She had a neighbor that convinced her that maybe she should consider coming back to the church and reconnecting with God. So she's telling me the story about the abuse. And then she begins to cry. And she says, will you help me? I said, well, Jesus can help you. And when I said that, her eyeballs turned green and her pupils became slanted like a serpent. And this voice comes out of her mouth very deep and says, who's he? He has no power over us. So I did an exorcism a week later. And uh, when we began, as soon as I began the prayers, the green eyeballs are back in the slanted pupils. And the demon says to me, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're not strong enough and begin to laugh and then would start cussing and blaspheming those types of things. That's intense. It is. And 45 minutes into the prayer, part of the ritual is you breathe on the face of the person invoking the Holy Spirit. It's the recognition that wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. And I simply breathed on the face of this person, and the chair they were sitting in flew back 10 feet like it was hit by a strong wind. And then there was a shriek and a scream, and the person comes flying out of the chair and collapses onto the floor. There was another priest with me. We lifted her off the floor, and she begins to praise and glorify God. And there's literally a glow about her. And the best way to describe the glow is if you've ever seen a painting of a saint, and there's a halo around their head. It's not their glory they're radiating. They're radiating the glory of God. So that's an indication to me that the demon has been cast out. The ugliness of the demon is gone, and now the glory of God is all that remains. And that took 45 minutes. So yes, people that are dealing with the demonic can be helped. 
they can leave all that behind. Wow, that's an incredible oh, story. Oh my God. That sounds like a movie. <laughs> you, you, you can star in it. You want to star in it? <laughs> I don't think I could do that chair move. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there were definitely some jokes in this Facebook group too. Like somebody asked if you wore um, aluminum in your deodorant. <laughs> um, you know, if their head could really spin around, you know, the projectile vomit. Have you seen projectile vomit? Those things can happen. You know, the devil can play on a person's memory and imagination. So is it really that they had the spinning around or is the demon causing a person to, to believe that they see that? That's why the exorcist is trained that once he's convinced that it truly is extraordinary demonic activity, not to focus on the manifestations, but to focus on what God wants to do in the life of this person. And I appreciate some of those questions because I tell people I have a warped sense of humor. So now I'll think about putting on the armor with the aluminum deodorant. So Oh, I love that. That's so good. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? What question did he have? Or maybe we answered already. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to have lots to say about this. My dad actually is a believer uh -huh. and he has had, I feel like, God moments that he talks about a lot. So I'm sure that from these stories that you've told, he will have a lot to say. Ah, there you go. Yes. Amazing. I would just tell him to keep the faith. <laughs> keep the faith. I think he has it more than me. And I need to work on that. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully that I think on our discussion today, it just challenges people to really think about what they really believe. So again, you know, people may listen to what I've had to say in our conversation. They may accept some of it. They may reject some of it, but if it causes people to step back and say, okay, what do I really believe about the reality of good and evil about God and the devil? So then, it, you know, anytime somebody is challenged to, to think on a deeper level, I think that's a positive thing. I love that. That's such a strong closing. Thank you so much. How can people reach out to you? I know 3,600 other people know how to do that. <laughs> Usually people just, if you put my name out there on the internet, you're going to find a way to read. It's pretty easy to do. Thank you so much. And now, some, some exorcists are publicly known and some are not. And my bishop gave me permission to be publicly known just as a way to help educate people about what the church actually believes in teaching. Because I think sometimes there's a lot of misinformation out there. So again, I can present what the church believes. And then again, what people do with that information is entirely up to them. Thank you for being a light in the darkness. I yes. have very much enjoyed talking to you. And I feel like this was such the spiritual message that I needed today. So thank you. Yep. I can see you radiating the light too and the joy on your face, the whole conversation. So that's Aww. a very positive thing as well. Thank you. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. What did well, you think of that? Your well, first exorcist conversation. Well, I listened to the whole thing. And really what I found in this interview is that to me, you know, right away, the first thing I had the expectation that an, an exorcist is somebody that's going to be way out there. But the reality is, is that you have a person that has been studying the Bible and uh, of course, in his version, the Old Testament and the New Testament and going over really a very spiritual job of being a priest. An exorcist isn't necessarily some wacko. It's somebody that is actually a priest that's looking to help people come out of darkness and come into the light of the Lord or God, which is a very big job and really a needed job because there's a lot of people that are lost. There's a lot of people that are depressed. There's a lot of people 
that can't handle even loss, where he does uh, funerals, sometimes five a day, where he is connected very spiritually to God himself and to people and trying to sincerely help people manage their spirit. And if they're having problems or they believe that evil has taken them over, that he's there to try to put the light of God into these people to show that there's hope no matter what. If someone has been abused their whole lives or they've lost all their money or their wife has left or they have a drinking problem, a lot of people give up and they think it's the end of the world. And by saying Vince, he's trying to tell you that that there's tests in this world, and it's not even all about this world, that it, you are here to do the best that you can and work on your connection with God. And isn't that quite a twist? Because I say the same things. I'm not a priest. I'm actually Jewish and have a very strong spiritual connection with God. But that doesn't mean that there isn't other people out there, even with a differential when it comes to certain religious beliefs. But the fact is, is that he has studied and understands some of the same teachings that we have experienced. And he can be just as close and connected to God and be a good person and trying to also deliver God's message as anybody else. That was a, a little bit of an awakening period for me, because as you watch the TV and you watch some of the, you know, you get you get really a false idea of what being an exorcist really is. I remember taking a date in high school to this where we, you know, we saw that girl's head turning around and spitting out. Uh, green stuff, where we thought it was just entertaining that uh, we don't certainly want evil to possess us. But the fact is, is that that's just being overly dramatic. Really, people who are hurting and have problems and need guidance and encouragement and need to have their faith back. And they just don't know the road back to getting their faith back. And I think that people need to understand that we live in a world that we think that we know science, we think that we know what it's all about in this world, and yet when you really look at it on a spiritual level, and we really look at it that God puts us in motion with the planets and moving in the day and the year, and if we stay in motion, believe it or not, our lives go very quickly on this finite planet that we're on. And I believe, as you know also, that we can live on through different dimensions, and our spirit can live on. I even have the interpretation that I might have even been here more than once, okay, where we don't really know God's full game plan or even understand what God is fully about 100%, just beyond our comprehension, because we don't have an example of it. So this is a type of episode that we want to really emphasize, that there's always hope. There's a need for love. There's a need for peace. And that if we show that we can mature our spiritual self, our boundaries are unlimited. Wow, Dad, that was deep. <laughs> I like the show. And when in doubt, and you need a little advice, better call Daddy. Or Father Vincent. Or Father Vincent. He knows where it's at as well. All right. No head spinning around though, huh? No head spinning around tonight. <laughs> Okay, I'm signing off. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. 
I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.